Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by returning guest and fellow medievalist Mabel Slattery for a not work-appropriate episode, so warning now on the erotic Chaucer adaptation, The Ribald Tales of Canterbury. Oh my god. (laughs) Returning listeners will, of course, um, recognize you, but would you like to, in any case, uh, reintroduce yourself and also tell the listeners uh, why you made me watch this movie? (laughs) I did no such thing. (laughs) I will put that out there right away. The very first thing is that you said... I said that I knew about it and you said I kind of feel we have to do it. True. <laughs> yes, I'm Mama Mabel Slattery. I, I have an MA in Mama Medieval Studies. So I'm interdisciplinary. What I would describe myself as is a literary historian um, because I'm posh. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I'm, part of the, I'm part of the York crowd. So... Any of the any of your listeners from the York crowd know me. My specialism is mem- medieval humour, as in comedy, not as in like the humours. Um, <laughs> it's always an interesting, uh, interesting distinction that you have to make when you do medieval right. stuff. stuff. Um, but but uh, I was a stand-up comedian, or still am technically. I have been for about nine years. That so I was that before I was uh, mem- medieval person which has definitely given me some interesting approaches to medieval (laughs) stuff Uh, so yeah that's 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 basically me comedian um oh and i now i'm teaching so i've recently been teaching henry the seventh which is really difficult because he's dead but there you go (laughs) welcome so with regards to this film the yes i first heard of it when i was doing my uh, the dissertation on the Canterbury Tales and the guy I was with at the time had done a porn module on his mm-hmm. degree because he his degree was in uh, media, stu- media studies okay. so his module was on porn and one of the things they had to look at was really really bad porn uh-huh. and so he showed me one of the, the very bad porns which was uh, Alice the X-rated musical it's an Alice in Wonderland okay. one which is Oh, you dear. can find the you can find the non X rated cut on YouTube, and I highly recommend it because it's hilarious. <laughs> but one of the ones he found while he was looking for this was something called the Ribald Tales of Canterbury, and he was like, "Should we watch it and find out how close it is to the Canterbury Tales?" <laughs> so we did, and I have not been able to get it out of my head since. <laughs> now I will also have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I. I seriously warn anyone like who 
listens to this and then decides they want to watch it, you may never want to have sex again. I, I, like, I'm ace. It didn't matter to me anyway. <laughs> like, but anyone allosexual might, might never want to have sex again after this. So I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> it's definitely a film. Yes. So Ribald Tales of Canterbury came out in 1985. It is written by and starring... And directed. Would you just say Hypatia? Oh, produced. Hypatia, I imagine. Hypatia, yeah. Because there's an A in there, but I wasn't sure if we were Mm. supposed to do anything with that. Yeah, Hypatia, which is a great name. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine probably not her real name. No, but I kind of hope so. (laughs) I kind of hope she had parents who just called her Hypatia. Right. (laughs) She also produced it, and then the director, Budley, was at the time her husband. Yes. I'll, I'll be fair, I don't know much about pornography as a genre. Um, Nor do I. So, so this is a very strange walk through. But, but, but yes, it's... Also, I should add that it's it, it matches one of those ones where, like, if something's, like, written by, starring, and produced by, it's always a bit of a danger um, right. area. But also... <laughs> Her in the song that starts it, it says the host is High Hypatia mm-hmm. or something like that. So she's also has the name <laughs> in the in so she it's it's written starring, produced, and she's like a character. <laughs> right. Herself, which makes me think she is one of those people like the Richard the Third people who think Richard the Third is like their boyfriend, but she's like that with Chaucer. <laughs> right. <laughs> This also stars Mike Horner and Colleen Brennan. Mike Horner as the knight and Colleen Brennan as the wife of Bath. Uh, they are not people I have seen in things, but Neither. they have a lot of credits. So Fabulous. if we have listeners who are fond of this of the adult film industry, you might have seen them. Yeah. And the one other thing I am going to mention is that I was unreasonably entertained by the fact that the director of the photography, and I just noticed when watching the credits, is just named Guido. Yeah, I know. No last name, just Guido. I'm like, I'm like, what, Guy <laughs> Fawkes was the director of photography in this? How many explosions did they have to cut out? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that is fantastic. Yeah, that was quite wonderful. So the first section, the enumeratio segment, is uh, where we talk about essentially the plot details, uh, such as they are, of this film. (laughs) So just as a kind of brief orienting summary of the premise, as a group of pilgrims gather to travel to Canterbury, the hostess of an inn suggests a game in which they compete to tell the best story for a purse of money. So far, so All the stories have a lot of sex. That's where it's like less Chaucer. Well, I mean, not that Chaucer doesn't have sex. You know, there's a... There's, there's a host, there's a competition, it's storytelling, they're going to Canterbury. You know, I'm just going to say right now, this is not the worst medieval adaptation I have seen. <laughs> like, as an adaptation of medieval material. It's mm. not the worst that I have covered for this podcast. I will just say that. I found a review that was like, oh, it's really, really good. And then it was like, you've clearly never read the Canterbury <laughs> I am going to make the argument that I think this is a better adaptation of the Canterbury Tales than I think El Cid is of the Poem of the Cid. Fair. No, no, that's definitely fair. I'm going to make that argument. Can we also say that even though it is, it says it is based on the novel by Geoffrey Chaucer, <laughs> <laughs> which was 
one of the first points of me going, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. You're going, you realise novels haven't been invented. <laughs> right. <laughs> it opens with a meal in an inn with a song that I swear went on for like 10 minutes. Yeah. About like living the Canterbury life, by which I mean, I guess they mean like being in London and vaguely planning on eventually going to Canterbury. I don't know. I don't know. Or like dying in a church, maybe. Like <laughs> being 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 ordered to be assassinated by the king. That's the Canterbury life, isn't it? Um, right. Or I did if- cover Beckett for this podcast, and I do like to imagine like specifically like Richard Burden as Thomas Beckett. Yeah. watching this movie and like dying a little inside <laughs> or like all the modern canterbury life from what i know from people who live in and around canterbury fending off incredible racism oh dear sorry sort of aging population i believe but the yeah the song the problem with the song is you will never get it out of your head particularly if like me very soon afterwards, you had to read a book titled The Oxford Guide to Chaucer, The Canterbury Tales, um, which <laughs> scans perfectly. <laughs> oh so dear. every time you look at that book, you're just like, The Oxford Guide to Chaucer, The Canterbury <laughs> Tales, is <I> don't know. <laughs> um, oh dear. It's basically The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, but, but like without the, like, the wholesome yes. potential. Yes, it's yes, it's a much less wholesome Wizard of Oz. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. <laughs> I also like that they seem to have ex- clearly expended most of the budget on that first scene, right? Despite despite the fact that like even with the song, like the people playing the song, because they've got a band in the corner of this pub, and the, for some reason there's panpipes. <laughs> right. And every time that confuses me. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing is, like, in terms of the budget, so this scene, and then there's also, like, an in scene at the end, which I swear to God is the exact same set. Oh, yeah, they're the same, they're the same set, for sure. But also, like, so in both of those scenes, there's, like, I don't know, like, 20 people, maybe? In yeah. the rest of the movie, there's at any given time, like, six people? Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, so you, like, hire the extras for one day to do, like, this scene, to do, like, basically, like, the in sequences, and then they all went home. Yeah. You know, it's a, I mean, you know, it's 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 a nice day if you're an extra. Right. There are lots of ladies putting boobs in that other people's faces. I also like that they had like an, a, a half-hearted and br- brief attempt at accents, and then went. Right. Eh. <laughs> eh, we don't need them. Also, the sheer amount of raw salad in that scene. Like, yeah. Me going like, okay, so everyone died of listeria and no one went to Canterbury. <laughs> Right. There sure. is one food thing that I will comment on later that we do yeah. have like the full on boar's head and I will uh Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Share facts about that later. Yay. So the hostess announces they're going to be leaving for Canterbury the next day. I by the way am a little unclear in terms of the plot. Does she own this inn or the inn in Canterbury or both? Gods know and gods know why she's just holding a feather. Okay, yeah. Because she is like She's yeah. just holding a green feather for no apparent reason. Okay. I'm not sure whether it's attached to anything. I'm not sure whether it's a pen. I'm not sure whether it's just a thing so she can go around and tickle people. It Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she she proposes this contest. And then before they leave, also, we have our first, uh, like, sex scene, which is the carpenter having sex with some woman who doesn't join them. Should add the carpenter... Not a character in the in the Canterbury Tale, not one right. of the Canterbury Pilgrims. So, 
gods only know where he came from i think what he, where he came from is a fact that they like came up with a fuck ton of carpenter based innuendo oh yeah that was eg <laughs> let's see how well you drive a peg yes that that was definitely a thing that scene really is really interesting because like it goes from all flutely tootly music and then mm-hmm. suddenly we're in a massage parlor that's been done up to look more wooden and there's like yes. And the music changes to what can only be described as, like, bad platformer music. Like, right. the kind of platforming game where the mechanics are really rubbish and, like, <laughs> you, like, keep overshooting the jumps and falling to your death. I mean, like, gods know what the boss fight's going to be like because, like, <laughs> it, this is looking pretty heavy from what I can tell. Um, we should add that it, this, this is actual hardcore porn. There are money shots yes. all over the show. Yes. And the bedroom, by the way, does not look in any way medieval, I will just add. Again, it's a 1980s massage parlor that that they've gone like, shall we put a different door on this? Yes. Um, (laughs) Oh, that was the one thing as well, like, with regard to the carpenter, like, the carpenter and the miller are, like, the best dressed out of everyone. Which always really yeah, they actually me. look much nicer than the knight. Yeah, that will I will that will come in later as well yeah. because I have I have fun history information on that, but also like in terms of like dress, like the women are far too it's not really dress, but the women are far too smooth. Like even with the bush, like they've left yeah. the bush on, going like, well, it's medieval, and it's like no, <laughs> um, how right. much? But wax yeah, but otherwise they they're like fully shaven. It's like oh yeah, it's okay. Yeah, how much wax did they have? Right, women. The women hardly ever remove their headwear right yes and this, yes it, the sex and like full-on just like giant headdresses is yeah. like a lot and i have issues with this but i'm not entirely sure why <laughs> like it's it just disturbs me in a way i can't quite put into words and also with, with this scene the carpenter sounds like he's in severe pain like how many utis are going on <laughs> in, this, in this film because oh, oh my god the noises are just like ah, ah, ah. <laughs> in general i feel like the like sex sounds in this movie are deeply deeply unsexy but also deeply embarrassing in ways that i was definitely like i think i got about i think i got about like 30 seconds into that scene and was like nope i need to listen to this with headphones yeah fair play i have neighbors what was the 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 bit that oh i i went on a full like little film uh interested bit like it's very clearly a double because at one point the double puts his hand on his upper thigh where the original character has a birthmark Hmm. um i don't know why i found i spotted that but you know i basically went i basically had like an autism moment where i went (laughs) (laughs) they begin their pilgrimage and the knight tells the first story which basically is he's traveling he meets this like very attractive uh, young like young man who is going to the pope to have be confirmed as an abbot despite the fact that he is too young i at first was like oh ha huh, like is there going to be a gay scene but no there was not a gay scene it's just the abbot is disguised as a woman and is really a i guess the daughter of the king of england who is betrothed to the quote heir of flanders and needs the pope to like marry her it opens up so many questions, of which my major one is, why the fuck is she dressed as an abbot? Yes! Um, it is, like, a bizarre 
choice that they make to really just have like the knight meet a random woman and then they have sex oh especially considering like the knight's tale has plenty of opportunities for sex in it because it is two blokes fighting over one girl you could totally have the most interesting sort of dual slash sex scene in that but my favorite line in this scene is uh where she reveals is where she invites him to bed with her when she's still dressed as an abbot and he says, I did not know whether to strike him or what. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that came out of nowhere and I loved it. Like, you know, there are some beautiful lines in this film, if nothing else. Some of the lines in this are incredible. But yeah, like, I don't know why, we don't know why she's dressed as an abbot. We don't know why the knight seems to blink his way to an orgasm. We don't know why the music is suddenly like that sort of old science documentary that you're like used to show on the Open University at 2am that your school would wheel in on a massive old television that would go, please set up your Bunsen burners now. (laughs) You know, none of of this is explained and it's all very confusing. Yeah. But yeah, and so, and generally, like, the theme throughout is that pretty much every story, A, does not have a ton to do with the original stories in the Canterbury Tales, and B, is, like, a thinly veiled plot that excuses them, like, having a lengthy sex scene. I mean, at least in this one, he says, I love you at the end, you know? Yes. But it can never be, for she is the daughter of the King of England and engaged to marry the heir of Flanders. (laughs) I thought it would have been much funnier if he'd have gone like, uh, I love you, and she'd have just jumped backwards. <laughs> she was like, dude, I just wanted to, like, get fucked. <laughs> I'm, I'm on my way, I'm on my way to be, like, have my marriage ratified by the Pope for some fucking reason, so, like, you know, I just wanted a right. bit of fun. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then I do, I do love that, so you have the monk who's travelling with him, who, uh, just like makes assorted comments and keeps complaining that like the story that like stories do not sufficiently like have morals to them. The monk is fairly accurate, to be fair. Yeah, I, 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 I will get into this more, but I think this is yeah. actually again. I think this might be the one of the best portrayals of a medieval monk I have watched. It's definitely the best portrayal of the Canterbury Tales monk, I think. Right. He could probably have been slightly fancy addressed, but we'll get into that later. But, mm-hmm. like, in terms of, like, how the monk in the Canterbury Tales is... But this is what my dissertation on was on, so, like, if you don't want two hours of, like, me just, like, <laughs> yelling, um, it's really funny, why don't you understand? It's, uh, yeah, it's so... Uh, like, in terms of, like, how he is portrayed as the butt of the joke... It's it's definitely like one of the best portrayals yeah. of the monk ever. Yeah, and there's also like it's interesting because there's like a lot of him like uh, you know he like uh, crosses himself and like talks about morality. Like there's a lot of like him presenting himself. Yeah. In this very like public like in this very performative way as this religious figure, but like as we'll see, there is like an element of hypocrisy, but like in a way that works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The next story is that of the carpenter, but which is about the miller, which is great because the whole thing is really just to make fun of the miller who everyone hates. It's it's a f- actually also a flip on the Canterbury Tales because the miller actually tells a tale about the car- a carpenter. Right. There are so many things in this particular tale that make me just go, eh? <laughs> I mean, first of all, that wipe into the tale, which is a, like, a spiral thing with a little sound effect that goes <laughs> amazing 
So it's that there's two students and they arrive and they're supposed to mill their grain. Oh, did you notice where the students were from, though? No. The miller lives... It's a miller from Oxford, but he grinds flour for a Cambridge college and the student... A nearby what? Cambridge college and the students are from there. That's bizarre. Why not I know that really... from Oxford? I know, it really confused me. I was like, what? And I was like, one... Any self-respecting Mama Miller in Oxford would never grind for a Cambridge college. (laughs) (laughs) We know how this works with posh people. (laughs) They they stick to their own. I'm sorry, are you Oxen or Cantab? But yeah, that that really confused me. (laughs) And I only spoiled that on like the third watch through. That's how that's how dedicated I am to this. I watched this like three times. I did not (laughs) know. The miller we find out is, like, going to cheat them and not give them as much flour as they're due. Which is fair, because he wastes that much flour with his massive brush that for some reason he uses to fluff the flour into a pot. But the brush is well right, too big. Right, and then, like, and... half of it ends up on the floor. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, if this is his methodology, maybe he's not cheating them. Maybe he's just bad at his job. <laughs> and then he says to them, my grinding is a trade secret. And it's like, no wonder it's a trade secret, because you're <laughs> shit. <laughs> So his wife I, wants to basically help out the students because she thinks her husband sucks. Uh, she like sort of hits on him and he ignores her. So he and but like I think she manages to like distract him just enough that she's able to like do something with the flat. I don't know, switch flower sacks or something. Like sweep it off the floor. Like. Right. <laughs> Maybe Give do them a decent an extra job. Sack. I, I I don't know. It's also great because she's like telling the she's like telling her daughter that she's gonna do this. I don't care, can't remember exactly what she says, but it's basically like, oh, you know, I'll use all my feminine wiles. And then her husband clearly has like zero interest in her like rubbing up against him. And instead, she's just like, I see something in the distance. Go and look out the window for like ten fucking minutes. Feminine wiles. What can we say? <laughs> It's just feminine charm. Feminine charm of going, oh, what's that bloke over there? Right. (laughs) Carrying money. Then we have the dinner scene. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's the best scene in the whole film. Which is just like deeply uncomfortable. Like everybody with the Miller who is very unobservant, like doing like sexy eating. They start with grapes. There's sexy eating of grapes. There's sexy eating of all sorts. And then boom, surprise baguette. Yes. A whole baguette. (laughs) We're just like pulling get out of nowhere and starts like it licking it <laughs> oh man i watched this with a few friends with two mates and we were, and that scene broke them <laughs> they were just like they just looked at the screen and their eyes went so wide like right uh, we watched it remotely i should say but it's um because we are still for we are still under quarantine here um but uh yeah that we just watched it like like their eyes got wider and wider and wider like is that (laughs) yeah that's that's a full baguette (laughs) yep it's also like this okay because all right the baguette at least like it kind of makes sense and like sexy grape beating you've kind of heard of but then there is this like these like moments with like the two students who are clearly attempting to like mime cunnilingus with like a piece of chicken with the and whole it is, chicken, like the yeah. most uncomfortable thing i have ever seen admittedly they do work up to it because the ladies are using like chicken legs and trying to like sexily eat chicken legs and i have never seen <laughs> yes. a sexy attempt to eat 
the leg of a chicken. It doesn't work, everyone. It does no, not no, work. No, no. Um, it is not sexy. I mean, I'm not exactly the best judge on what, like, sexy is, but, but, but I can pretty much say, guarantee that that is, like, the least sexy thing. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was not. It was not sexy <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Although my mate did, my friend Jules did put a point out that it would, it was a crime that the uh, the Miller did not turn around to his wife and say, "You beget yourself, madam." Um, <laughs> not enough puns. Uh, oh, oh no, there were too many puns. There were just weren't enough good puns. <laughs> right. Well, there were a lot of puns, but they were mostly like innuendo related to people's jobs. Uh, uh, let's let's see. I did not realize that a carpenter could be so crafty with his tongue. Oh God. Oh God, <laughs> the daughter goes up to where the students are sleeping and starts having sex with them. Have you noticed how like everyone is instantly rock hard in this film? I tried not to, but yes. There might as well be a sound effect. I mean, the ones they've got for the transitions would probably right. do it but every top one takes their trousers down and it's like <laughs> everyone's like instantly right. solid yeah they're also i will say there is a lot of cunnilingus like yeah. more than i actually would have expected yeah i don't if somebody who watches more of this can let it, me know if i should have expected that we should say it was written by a woman yes yeah so from that point of view there might well be a lot more yeah, so I will say, like, I, I do appreciate the, like, yeah, a, a woman was responsible for this, and she was like, you know, you uh, you, you need some, for like, you know, foreplay isn't as necessary. Foreplay good, so, yeah. yeah. Not much so, of it, but sure. Yeah, so, you know, good for this movie, I guess. <laughs> it, it has its moments. I mean, none of those, but it has its moments. Yes. The mother, I guess, hears them and, like, goes upstairs and joins them. Oh, downstairs, which, like, I think. Oh, downstairs, yes. Yeah. I, yeah, this was, like, there was no actual, like, direct sexual contact between mother and daughter, but it was, like, a little too close to that for my comfort, I mean, personally. They do form what can only be described as a fuck swastika. Yes. Yes, they do. And it is it is so deeply disturbing. Also, what makes it even more disturbing is that the music becomes nursery rhymes. Oh, God. Like, I'd block that out. Pop Goes the Weasel and Three Blind Mice are in there. And I can never oh, listen to those again. God forbid I ever have children. Because I will never be able to... They will never learn those nursery rhymes. They will come home to me on their first day of school going, Mummy, Mummy, why did you never tell me this important bit of like child culture? And I'll be like... Why have you got such a high concept vocabulary for a start? And they'll go, um, you brought us up. And I'll go, but also it is for when you are 18. (laughs) (laughs) The Miller wakes up and finds them, but then like falls over and the students escape. Not before he accuses them of taking liberties, which I was like, yeah, and then some. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like taking liberties is like, overly euphemistic way to describe the fuck square situation like if you're taking liberties you're like eating all their food which you did creatively but you did it's not having a strange tangled foursome with your wife and daughter like hitting on them that would be taking liberties Mm, maybe a pinch on the bottom yeah like involving them in an orgy I think that goes beyond taking liberties. I mean, if if we're honest, it's great British understatement, but... 
<laughs> but you know, sure. <laughs> the next bit of the film, they they decide to, they decide to, uh, as the hostess says, I suggest we camp here in this clearing. It's a field. It's it's yeah. a massive field. It's, it's, it's just not a field. Clearing. I do just also want to note, by the way, that oh, yes. the real life Miller bitches about how he had to hear a story that was bigoted against Millers, and that the priest does at this point do his best to remind everybody that they are on a pilgrimage to the tomb of the Blessed Martyr, and raises questions about whether they should be making more of an effort to tell stories that have morals and don't promote sin. I mean no but sure um, <laughs> i mean not now but i mean have you have you did you read the script but yeah they they camp in this in a in this so-called clearing which is a field right it's a field it's a field it's a bloody meadow why i mean they probably like wrote the script and then they like filmed in like whatever sad locations they could find so like oh i don't know why i'm quite so quite so picky about this film because i realize that's not what it's about but <laughs> But also, it's a field. <laughs> like, right. it has clearly had grazing been done on it quite recently. <laughs> like... Or, like, actually, I mean, in practice, probably what is had done on it is, like, mowing. And also, like, they're, like, we need to, like, find a place where we can, like, pitch tents and film, like, a porn scene. Oh, yeah. yeah in what is essentially a public place. Like it's probably somebody's backyard. To see this is the this is the ace thing coming in again. I'm like, why didn't you do this properly? And it's like, because it's a porn film. Uh, <laughs> forgot about the sex that keeps going on. Right. So in this scene we just have the uh, the hostess and the wife of Bath have sex while the men hide outside their tent. They don't hide very well and watch them. Oh yeah, they hide terribly. They just stand. Yeah, and yeah watch. they really just like stand there, but also like they are not noticed. It, yeah yeah but, but yeah but like that's basically what it is is that they need like a place to like pitch a tent to like pitch a bunch of tents and then like film a like lesbian porn scene oh yeah 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 so and, and clearing I mean, it probably is somebody's backyard it is probably hapatia and budley's backyard oh it's a big backyard i'm <laughs> i'm 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 jealous right now they seem like they were very successful mm. yeah the, the, one of the more any any sex scene that um, Hypatia seems to be involved in is a lot more nuanced and sort of right. tender and like realistic and mm-hmm. less terrifying. I think <laughs> like the noises aren't painful. You know, they're much more. It's it's a much more you know like it's much more realistic. It's much more believable. And I can't believe I'm She's saying that about, about this film. film. So the next morning, the Miller is already drunk and they spend a lot of time like making fun of the Miller for being drunk. I mean, that's a mood. Yeah. So the hostess passes on his turn to the wife of Bath, who tells a story about how lambs were stolen from her father and she like has this whole plot to get them restored, which ends up being like her posing as the lady in waiting to the noble family that took her family's lands. Or as the um film requ- as the film um refers to her, the lady of waiting, which I believe oh, is a place just outside of Wapping. <laughs> <laughs> so basically then she ends up being the like I don't know, the, like, lookout for both the lord having sex with the queen of England. Who keeps her crown on, because how else would we know yes, she's she the queen? Does. Yes, she does have a full fucking crown on her head while having sex. And I've tried to block the, like, 
dialogue of this scene out of my memory. I have not entirely succeeded. If anyone I am ever having sex with uses the word delicious, I will slap them in the goddamn face. <laughs> also, the only thing I could really pull out of this was the fact that the Lord has no ass. <laughs> like he has no bum. Like they should have sent out a search party. <laughs> No, it's just flat. It's really weird. <laughs> the pancake-assed lord. <laughs> Which is the name of my new bro- prog rock band. Right. And then the lord's wife is having sex with the stable boy. And it is a choice that is made that there is exactly one black actor in this film who is the stable boy who is never named that the lady is having sex with. Although he does provide the best line in the entire film, which is, squeeze them balls, my lady. There's a lot of balls squeezing. It's the only time that it is requested, and I feel it is very politely requested, and so therefore... that's the only time it is requested, but there are actually multiple things that I noted where women then request to squeeze balls... Oh, yeah, yeah. And I will say, I feel like there is a decent amount also of, like, vocal consent. Yes, that's certainly in, true. In these sex scenes, which, you know what? Good. They should be promoting that. It's the future. Yeah. Or, or 1985, as the case may be. This is very progressive from 1985 for 1985. Yeah. <laughs> oh, although my friend Kat did say to point out at this point that, that she was very happy to see a person of colour in the medieval period in a paid job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so it is, I, I do appreciate that, like, they have that, like, implication of diversity, but it is, like, one person who is presented as being, like, much more lower class than everybody else. And also he, like, does not have, I guess nobody has a name, really. No. So I guess I'll let that one go. The king then arrives and uh, the lord is worried the king is going to realize he's been sleeping with the queen and also he realizes his wife is sleeping with the stable boy whatever the wife of bath uses all this to blackmail them into restoring her family's land the wife of bath's prologue by the way like has enough material that could have made for a like better porn scene than what we got i'm just gonna say i'm pretty sure at one point a penis stands up and defends itself in court (laughs) in the wife of bath at least in the tale or the Couldn't prologue, I can't that? remember. But yeah, like, I know at one point a penis stands up and defends itself in court. How is that not fit for a porn <laughs> film in itself? And in the prologue, there's like all of this stuff about she's basically like, yeah, like I keep just like finding a lot of younger men to have sex with. And I'm like, this just like badass, like medieval cougar. Like, why couldn't we have just had that? I mean, I had the church door. <laughs> but yeah, very, very strange. The choices yeah. that go on in this. <laughs> The hostess finally tells her own story, which is about uh, the the term used, I will say, in the film is gypsy. I will, in acknowledgement of the fact that that is considered to be a racially offensive term, uh, will from here on use, uh, say, Roma, a woman who is in love with two men, and in order to win both of them, she makes a deal with the devil. The, the two men's names rhyme, so I'm assuming they're twins, because that's how it works. Good for you for remembering the men's names, which I did not. Um, I can't remember what they are. I just remember they rhyme. I think they're like... All um... I noticed is that one of them looks kind of like a poor man's James Franco. Oh, um, the other thing that I noticed was that one of them is in brown face. Because... Oh, that hairline. And that earline. No! It's like suddenly this film went like... it It was coursing a pretty low bottom feedy type thing anyway and then it just kind of suddenly went like 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 a drill right down 
I have an upsetting question. Okay. When they did the brown face for this man, did they also uh, do that for his penis? Not that I can tell. Okay. Although I didn't pay that much attention because I as, also you will find, yeah. as you will find out, there was a lot more to, to pay attention to in that particular scene. My favourite yeah. bit currently is that apparently she read the tarot and the tarot says right. she can have both. To which my reaction was like, what does she draw? Like the two of wands and one of cups. Like... <laughs> But yeah, she goes off to to this to to this. Um, I'm I'm assuming it's what we call a clearing at this stage, <laughs> and meets the devil who is Jimmy Fallon, dressed like Tim Curry, joined a glam rock band. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Like his his astounding likeness to Jimmy Fallon makes me quite right like, unnerved. <laughs> like we were going, is that Jimmy Fallon? <laughs> right. Also the like creepy Orientalism of like that you have the devil is like has like a turban inexplicably. It's like Yeah, hmm. I don't I don't quite Because, you know, again, Tim Curry, if he joined the glam rock band. Right. You know, he needs to be dressed like that or he is not suitably the devil. She gets from the devil a magic violin which she is then supposed to use to seduce men because I guess that's how you seduce men is by playing a violin at them. Yeah, only two specific men though. Like, it, yes. it, it, you can't, you can't, you play the violin, everyone hears it, but only two people get seduced by it. Yes. Sure. So she plays the violin so then these two men like go into the tent to have sex with her. Oh, wait, wait for it. The, the, you forgot the, uh, the deal breaker of this which oh, is the, yeah. um that in exchange she has to like basically spend a day having sex with the devil which i'm like okay so she gets two husbands and she gets to fuck the devil i cannot <laughs> see the downside because let's face it he's been around since the beginning of time he's gonna have some moves right and like honestly you know she she seems like she she seems like she'd be on board she seems like she needs to learn a few things like <laughs> you know she might get some good tips Maybe. A tip that I'm not sure is a good tip that she uses is that, like, you should, like, do something where you put, like, these rings. Uh, I think that's from, like, the whole, like, um, Roma, supposed Roma tradition, don't know how true it is, that, like, if you wear, like, um, one earring, you're uh, not married. If you wear two earrings, you are married if you're a woman or it's, it's the, or the other way around for men. Mm. And I, like, I don't know how true that is, but, like, it, um like it yeah she uses them for interesting purposes shall we say mm-hmm. and yes i don't i don't quite i don't quite understand why I mean, that I don't is know. A thing. i guess actually like i i don't have a lot of personal experience but uh, i think actually a cock ring is a thing so maybe maybe it's a thing maybe it's a great idea i mean it might well be a great idea but but i'm not sure you'd want to use an earring right like they're like actual gold earrings which is like like gold hoop earrings which is like yeah I, i'm not sure that's I mean, like, like what they sell at sex shops the problem is like once you've taken them out you're gonna have to like do them up again before you put them on because oh my god could you imagine if you like put slid it on and it slid on slightly wrong and oh that that would not be good and then also you put them back in your ears and i'm not sure there is enough clorox in the world no no that Uh, no oh so much infection but the the one yes. thing that got me for this particular scene was like that there there seemed to be like two mirror balls 
<laughs> right. like hung up in the in the tent and we're not sure what i'm not sure why they're there right but, but one of them definitely gets in the way and this guy's having to like bat this mirror ball away <laughs> while he's fucking this lady <laughs> also one of those guys is getting a very real deal because most of the time he's just sat there right yeah it's like very it's like this very awkward like this is not really selling the threesome as like a good experience yeah, I, I can't imagine, like, anyone's... If anyone's, like, formative experience of, like, a threesome is this film, I can't imagine they'd right. be enjoying it. <laughs> like, Yeah, especially also because, like, it very much, like... Interestingly in this movie, even in the, like, multiple sex scenes that have two men, they never, like, touch or pleasure one another in any way. It was so, the like, 80s. Right, yeah, but, like, there's definitely an 80s, like, you know, like, hey, look, like, we're definitely not gay, but also we're, like, both going to have, like, our penises almost touch while they're, like, in this woman's mouth simultaneously. But, like, no homo? Of course! It's lads, lads, yeah. lads! <laughs> it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, let's face it, they do that, then they go for a cheeky Nando's, and then they, you know, it's, it's all that kind of thing. But, right. Oh, it's such a strange... Such yeah, a strange scene. Uh, unfortunately, to to use the uh, to use the term again, which I don't really want to do, but but it was just the phrase that began the whole story, which was in the gypsy way, um, which made me go like, whoa, 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 right? <laughs> we need to stop this film now. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> it was just so like it was it was one of those moments where you go, oh. <laughs> It also, okay, so so then, like, the end of the scene is basically just, like, she had such a good time having sex that she, like, overslept and then, like, didn't show up to fuck the devil the next day. So then he just, like, shows up and, like, spirits all of them away. I guess maybe forever? I don't know. It's not clear. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, best case scenario. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> have a, have like, a foursome. Go for one it. One day versus forever. I mean, you know, come right. on. This is brilliant. And I do appreciate that the priest is thrilled that he's the like, monk, finally, a story with a moral. Uh, it's the monk, by the way. Oh, yes. I think he actually is referred to as the priest. Oh, of course he is. I'll, I know that he is supposed to be the monk, but I'm pretty sure he is referred to as the priest. Naturally. It is this film. <laughs> yes. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, so he is thrilled that there is a moral because it shows you what can happen when Munz makes a contract with the forces of darkness. <laughs> Which is that you get to be fucked by two people and an immortal godlike being who has spent his entire existence seeking temptation. Right. I mean, I, mean, I guess she gets taken away from her family. Just, just as you know, I'm currently just pricking my finger and signing a contract as we speak. <laughs> like... <laughs> So, and I will discuss more on deals with the devil later and uh, choices that were made. I was once Mephistopheles in the Lords of Misrule's play of, uh, of uh, Faustus. And I can tell you that a deal with the devil is not that bad because yeah. I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> more deals with the devil is the actual moral that we they arrive in Canterbury at the same inn that they just came from in London. <laughs> yeah. Everyone is informed that it has been decided unanimously that although Hypatia was supposed to have been the, the judge, everyone has unanimously decided that her story was in fact the best and therefore she wins the contest. I mean, it had Jimmy Fallon in it, you know. Yeah. You, can't, you can't beat a cameo. 
I mean, like, a deal with the devil, like, honestly, like, they're not wrong. That was the best story. It probably was, yeah. Like, it was actually, it was the one that had the most interesting plot elements, I would say. Yeah, I think so. They arrive, they have a nice dinner, Pesha has more salad. Night. Right. <laughs> Just so much more salad. Oh, God. There's a lot of sword-related innuendo at this point. Yeah, it... I find it really weird because I I was like watching this sex scene with the knight and Hypatia and going like why is this nice sex scene intruding on our trash porn? <laughs> like, like well, what is then going it's interesting because it like so then the carpenter is also having sex with the wife of Bath and it keeps switching back and forth between those two scenes and every time it switches back and forth it switches back and forth between like this between the music which is like for the knight and Hypatia is like romantic music that's clearly. Lute. Yeah, it's clearly supposed to cast it as this, like, romantic sex scene, and then it switches to, like... Bad platformer. Yeah, like, bad platformer, like, reminder, please don't forget this is an 80s porn music. Yeah. Uh, although, I did have one moment in the, um... That's just a few moments, really. In the night Hypatia scene, which was that he kept referring to her as a fine woman. And, like, <laughs> not by her name. It was like... Okay, so you've forgotten the name of the woman that you've been travelling to Canterbury with from London on horseback. Well done. <laughs> Just, But he keeps going, fine woman. It's like, to okay. Fair, I don't think anyone ever uses anyone's name ever in this, in this movie. I mean, they don't. But also, like, fine woman? That's like one down from, like, okay woman. To, like, <laughs> it's like mediocre woman. <laughs> like seriously you're fine yeah seriously like what do you what do, what is it when you're like feeling pretty crap but like want to <laughs> but like want just no attention whatsoever it's like right. oh i'm fine i'm fine <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like what passive aggressive bullshittery is this it's like the human equivalent of like just you know adequate plane ships yeah oh fine woman just like oh my god no get it away from me get it away um and again we get to see the knight blink into orgasm which is a very exciting uh thing indeed he seems to do all his like his his, the sex faces in this are pretty spectacular to be fair right um we've got pain we've got blinking we've got (laughs) right (laughs) that's about it really i did actually like i was like watching this and i'm like is the monk gonna keep his vows no, he does not. Uh, it ends with him uh, receiving a blowjob under the table. Uh, calling this woman my child is not great. Uh, however, <laughs> him then, like, blessing her is legit pretty funny. <laughs> that is that is pretty good. I mean, my, my favorite bit about, like, uh, again, it, it really feeds into my, my notion like, that the monk is the most, like, faithfully representative yeah. of the Canterbury Pilgrims in this. My particular favourite bit about the end of the film is that the dog that's in the film gets credit. Dogs should always get credit. He's called Squeeze, or to give him his full title, Squeeze Dem Balls, my lady. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that made me very happy. Like, I was like, good dog. Good dog, Squeeze. Good, Good dog, actor. I would like to note that if we, like, allow for a pass for the fact that nobody really has a name mm-hmm. which like neither the women nor the men do no they were all carpenter miller knight 
This does pass both the Ift-Decker test, at which there has to be at least one named woman who doesn't die. Mm -hmm. It also, I would argue, does pass the Bechdel test. For the Ift-Decker test, are you counting uh, Le Petit Mort as uh, this? Because I think you'll find that in that case, (laughs) several women die. Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's allowed. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. In which case, yeah, sure, it passes. Little deaths are allowed, big deaths are not for the test. Oh, okay, as long as we've clarified that for future use. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So yeah, so this does pass the if-decker test, and also I think the sex scene with uh, Hypatia and the wife of Bath passes the Bechdel test. I think it might. Holy Like, they don't talk about men. They talk about each other's boobs. Yeah. Like, that passes. Oh my god. Right? Well done. You found a film that passes both. Right? Like, I'm so proud. I'm so, so proud. I hate to say it, but like, this is like a better film from a gender perspective than half the films I have watched for this movie, for this podcast. I I mean, let's face it, it's a better film than Braveheart, just generally. Right. (laughs) True. Let's, uh,. Better than Braveheart. (laughs) Better than Braveheart. It will go on like all the posters when this is released. (laughs) With that, we can now move into the Vera et Falso section where we talk about what they got right and wrong. I want to first uh, bring up a few things that I think it did not do especially well on. First, I'm going to just make a note about money. They are asked to each put in 20 pence to the purse. Which is is a huge amount of money. (laughs) So most craftsmen in 14th century England would make under 10 pence a day. And one source suggests that the standard wage for a carpenter in particular would be three pence a day, meaning that for the carpenter, he is paying like a week's salary. Yeah, of course, naturally, because, you know, you pay a week's salary to go and tell stories. For a bet. (laughs) For a bet, yeah, of course. Like they are encouraging some like not healthy gambling. Yeah. And also, so in the original source material, there is similarly like there's like this contest but the prize is a free meal Mm -hmm. the total purse which would be valued at about 10 shillings uh, assuming i correctly counted the number of people would pay for an entire cow or three pigs or 80 gallons of ale or my personal favorite approximately 240 pounds of cheese we need to get my sister in on this bet <laughs> right i'll just do it i'll do a storytelling bet for 240 pounds of cheese <laughs> as long as it's like all comte right <laughs> but uh, yeah that that really um also that he would that, what that means is that they would definitely not be able to spend the money that money on like the the serious like clothes that they have like, as you said, like the monk is the not the monk, the miller and the carpenter are better dressed than the knight, right? Which you could see as like a like a performative thing and things like mm-hmm. that, which is all well and good in like symbolism type way. But right. in terms of when this was written, there were things called sumptuary laws. Yes, basically after the Black Death, half the population of England died, pretty much. They reckon these days they say it's between thirty percent and fifty percent. But more accurate, more um, recent assessments say that about half and half. 
And it depends on where you are too. So oh, uh, like different regions have different rates, like cities versus the country have different rates. In Barcelona, they now say about 60% of the population probably. In Cornwall, they reckon it was, um, I'm Cornish, so hello. All right, I should say. So what well, they, they, they reckon, I mean, they'd say it was a bit lower, but actually I'd say it was a lot higher than people think it is because one, communities were incredibly tight and mm-hmm. two, um, port towns. Right. So they were getting in a lot of stuff. But what that means is that because about half the population was shaved away, there were not enough people to do jobs for rich people that had been in the past. So it actually introduced the notion of social mobility, Mm -hmm. which becomes a really interesting thing, like when you get to like future stuff especially like a couple hundred years down the line how that sort of knocks on oh just to add also that there's also uh, a concentration of wealth uh, from inheritance because uh, you know if you're if you're a carpenter (laughs) but you're like the only person in your extended family who survived the black death like you're going to end up inheriting a decent amount yeah particularly if like everyone is dying like and everyone's got a little bit of money you're gonna end up with a lot of money so what this means is like that, that people ended up with a lot more money than was seen as proper for their uh, status in life. So one of the things that was brought in that can be, can be seen as like a, a, not necessarily a cause, but a factor that contributes towards the peasants' revolt of um, 1381 is these things called sumptuary laws. So sumptuary laws are basically the rules about what people can wear. Right. You weren't allowed to wear purple because that was a royal colour, because it took indigo dye, which was very, very expensive. You weren't allowed to wear you weren't allowed to wear um fur, except rabbit fur as trim for winter warmth. The, the my favourite fact which uh ruins this for anyone who listens to Mama My Stand Up Set who gets asked this question in future, because I do ask it at every stand up set, which is like to guess the point the length that the points could be on noblemen's shoes. <laughs> noblemen's shoes were legislated up to uh, 24 inches. So that's two feet worth of point on the shoe. It only ever got to 20 inches, but they were legislated for up to 24 because they were sure that at some point they'd go beyond that. So like the notion that these uh, people were a bit, would be allowed to wear such rich feathers and have all the decorations on their horses to match their clothes and all this kind of thing seems a lot different to the knight say in his little robin hood hat and tartan which hadn't even been invented <laughs> by that point so it's it's a really interesting point to note that like while it works in a sort of getting the hang of their characters thing it definitely wasn't a thing that happened at the time <laughs> at right. all they would just not have been allowed to by pain of like either a like hefty fine or like corporal punishment right yeah and you know these are definitely also like laws that uh, i mean you know, it's because like they are very much laws that are very much about maintaining different kinds of social boundaries i mean when you see them in this is not uh, this doesn't apply to england because they uh, have gotten rid of their jews by now but like in a lot of other places one of the big forces of the sumptuary laws are to make sure that Jews and Muslims also were relevant, uh, can't essentially dress in a way that implies that they might be of higher social status than essentially wealthy Christians, even if they actually are, like, richer. Naturally. Oh, dear. Speaking of Jews, I have, like, my, like, standard, like, Jew watch for this podcast, uh, so... I love Sarah's Jew watch! Yes. There needs to be a theme tune for this. Right. Like, 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 a, like the Crime Watch theme tune. <laughs> 
there obviously were not Jews, as I just said, in England during Chaucer's time. But first, there is this story about this deal with the devil, which is presented as being a story about the Roma. And there are these associations between the Roma and deals with the devil, but those are quite a bit later. So most mm. of the legends that I can find that have that character come from the 17th century or after. Yeah. And the Roma themselves don't seem to have been in England until like early 16th century, based on what I was coming across. I mean, they were probably there before, but they probably weren't recorded as there before. Like it's, right. it's that sort of thing. So they at least like they weren't like a social group that people no. like had a strong awareness uh, so even no, if there were like slides. isolated Roma in England before, like before that, they weren't like a social group that people were aware of who were like subject to this particular kind of stereotype. No, it, it comes. It's it's a thing like it that what you tend to find in like the medieval period is is groups aren't sort of grouped as quickly as you might think they would be. Right. The group that would have in this period been actually associated with this kind of story about making a deal with the devil would have been, of course, the Jews. Who, incidentally, were blamed for the Black Death, so... Yes, who were blamed for the Black Death. Uh, and, of course, there is, like, a very popular anti-Jewish legend that about, like, basically a Jew who pressures a cleric into making a deal with the devil that appears in a number of, uh, of different uh, kind of places throughout the medieval world. Yeah. Anti-Jewish literature is, like, really interesting. Um, if, yes. if you If you want to, like go and research it like it's it's horrible most of it but it's yes but it's fascinating to like see how in terms of humor because obviously that's what i do mm-hmm. what you find is that a lot of like the jokes that you see you you find that the same jokes are used over and over right through the ages like not even within a few years you find them like throughout different periods of time and i find that really interesting and anti-jewish humor was so such a thing yeah. but the joke structures are so the joke structures are in themselves benign it's what people choose to put them on mm-hmm. i mean yeah and i think like studying the kind of various incarnations like humorous and less humorous of anti-jewish literature it tells you really important things about like the medieval world and about like christian identity as well and of course the fact that like one particular source of and or one particular place where you could look at for anti-jewish literature is in the canterbury tales yeah definitely since the prioress's tale is a ritual murder narrative the uh the accusation that jews ritually murdered christian children for a variety of purposes like the fact that like this story is in the canterbury tales there are no jews in england like it's like it's fascinating the extent to which England has like not had Jews for a century yet still has anti-Judaism. I think it's partly because of it's partly like the crusades type rhetoric that happens. Mm-hmm. So that notion of Christianity above all else, but also it's it's because you've got there's a surprising amount of immigration right in the medieval period that people do not focus on. Mm-hmm. But obviously a lot of that immigration was from uh Europe and mm-hmm. from areas that were really anti-Jewish. So you get a lot of that information, and also because all the royal families were just basically one big family. And of course, also, I mean, there's there's just things that like seem to pop up, essentially, like regardless of having Jews. I mean, so one of the things that I think is really interesting is that England is actually where the earliest uh, ritual murder accusations that we know of originate, yeah. is uh, 12th century England. But there's actually seems to be something of a like resurgence in the popularity and the 
veneration as saints of uh, the little boys allegedly murdered by Jews, that like crops up again and has a resurgence in popularity in the 15th century. Yeah, it's a, it's a very weird, I mean, it's, it's a similar to sort of like the true crime phases that we go mm-hmm. through in like the 20th and 21st centuries. Think right. it's, it's but it's that idea that you love to have a section of the popularity uh, of the population to demonize and that you know it and and it just becomes what's acceptable as you go along mm-hmm. it, it's a really interesting phenomenon and yeah. that like so for a long time psychopaths were a good target of like these are the only people mm-hmm. that could do this terrible thing and it is definitely like a level of distancing. Yeah, this is something that I that I teach, and it's like it's something that always in the last few semesters uh, I've had mostly Jewish students because uh, I teach in a Jew. I've been teaching in a Jewish studies program for the last three years. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, and so like you know, and I teach um, ritual murder and blood libel mm. and host desecration accusations. Uh, you know that the Jew that Jews allegedly like took the host and like stabbed it because they hate Jesus so much and also definitely believe in transubstantiation. Yeah, yeah, naturally. <laughs> and they're fascinating because like one of the like one of the things that's always really interesting is that like one of the initial like reactions that students always have is like, well, but this logically doesn't make any sense. I mean, so like the ritual murder accusations originally were basically just that like Jews were kind of ritually reenacting the murder of Jesus and also like they hate Jesus and they hate Christians. Yeah. And then gradually it also incorporates the blood libel, the claim that Jews then used the blood in matzah. And so like I had all these students who are basically like, but don't they understand kashrut laws and that Jews aren't allowed to like drink blood or like, like that Jews even have to like basically like drain the blood out of meat to an extent that like is not standard for non-kosher meat. And I was like, going to say, no, surely care. Make, I was going to say, surely it makes non-kosher matzah. <laughs> like, why would you do that? I think also somebody this semester asked me if that was true, wouldn't matzah be pink? Yeah, it would be rubbish matzah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it, I, I find that sort of thing. I, I think it's really important to sort of go through those different notions of of prejudice and things like that. Yeah. But yes, so Roma, uh, Roma legends actually being applied to Jewish people. Yeah, and so like you kind of have to wonder if like basically like I mean either it's just like complete bullshit or it's like maybe they're like oh ha huh, maybe we shouldn't like have this like weird like the Jews and the devil thing in 1985. Yeah. But like in 1985, like having that with the Roma would have been like not something that would have like and because i feel like nobody like taught i mean like in 1985 i feel like people still used the word gypsy uncritically that would have been more acceptable i mean i mean to be fair probably more acceptable even now right yeah i mean a lot of people like still use the word like without realizing that like it's racist overtones yeah i feel like it's just like for various reasons it's not something that people are as thoughtful about as anti-Semitism and so like it would have been considered more kind of generally acceptable at the time and probably as you said even now even though like it's actually not yeah so it's like this weird kind of like remapping of this uh, anti-Jewish legend onto a, uh, a Roma group yeah the other thing that, another thing that I wanted to bring up and that I kind of mentioned before is something I wanted to talk about in terms of things that are like overall like kind of like pretty messy and like mostly wrong yeah is this like too young abbot yeah yeah. oh i mean that's like 
all what the fuck. Right. I mean, so, okay, so first of all, like, the problem of, like, a cleric who's really too young for his position, that's pretty common for bishops and archbishops who get appointed very much, like, for political purposes. Yep. But it's much less common for abbots because they actually get elected by yeah. their monastic houses who, like, normally don't want to elect some, like, fucking, like, 15, like, you know, 19-year-old. <laughs> we elect Jimmy! What? <laughs> Right. And so most elected abbots were in England in the 14th and 15th centuries mm-hmm. seems to have been like in their 40s, more or less, when yeah. first elected. Because like you want somebody who's like young enough that they'll be in charge for a while. Like you don't necessarily like want to elect somebody and then have them die in five minutes. They're not like pups, uh, let's face it. Exactly. <laughs> but like you also like you don't want a 20 year old. So the canonical age is 22 and abbots below that are very rare. There is one recorded uh, papal absolution for an abbot appointed at the age of 20 in England in 1476. Okay. But really only one and it seems like most of the like cases of two young abbots were essentially due to like exceptional circumstances having to do with like plague and a lot of people died and so they're basically like ugh, i guess you're the best we've got (laughs) all our old people died (laughs) right and then the real story is even more confusing that like actually she's like not really an abbot she's like a princess who okay why it makes no sense that why is she English... dressed as an abbot why that is she doesn't an make abbot? any sense like that would have been considered like actually pretty questionable like that is not something that like the king would have like signed on to but then that also raises the question of like okay i guess it's because she's like near unaccompanied which also makes no sense and also like why is she going to the pope in the first place I mean, if you needed a papal dispensation, you would do that, but you wouldn't, like, send, like, the English princess basically, like, alone to get a papal dispensation before sending her off to Flanders. Also, generally, papal dispensations for marriage are only required when there's, like, serious consanguinity or... Although, like, you know, by this by this time, like, a lot of the nobility probably oh, need yeah. one. Admittedly, <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, they've relaxed quite a lot of the consanguin... Is it consanguinity or consanguinity? I can't remember. Consanguinity, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, they'd relax the consanguinity laws quite a lot by the right. like early 15th century <laughs> right so it totally makes sense that like there would have been like a dispensation needed but like it would have been given basically automatically like yeah. you wouldn't have need to travel way way out of your way to rome uh, because this is also like this is during the great schism and uh england uh followed rome so they would have had to go all the way to rome and they would have had to go through france which would have been interesting right like you have like you have to you would have had to like basically like what pass by the pope in avignon to get to rome and like that's a whole thing and so it's like this like none of it like this is all like just such a weird decision either that or you could have sailed like round france and gone right <laughs> But, but then you'd like basically be like in Flanders where she's supposed to be going to get married. Yeah, exactly. And also, by the way, I would just like to add that uh, neither of the English kings that Chaucer overlapped with had a daughter who married anyone in Flanders. So it's a clusterfuck all round. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unless Richard II had a very, very young, uh, had a daughter very young. <laughs> no and henry the fourth had a couple of daughters and i didn't write down exactly who they married but it was not anybody in flinders yeah fair play yeah uh richard the second what a party king i loved him <laughs> good old richard the second i mean he it, he's the uh he's the origin of the first cookbook in the english language the form of curry which mm. i was 
talking to a bloke in a random market about the other day because that's the kind of life I live as a medievalist. I mean, fair. Speaking of cookbooks, I do want to note, while the salad is not great, we do see a boar's head, and this is something that is uh, attested as a meal in a number of medieval cookbooks. The boar's head carol in itself is a beautiful yes. thing. It's in yes. one of my one of my texts. Basically, yeah. I started a PhD, didn't finish it b- because illness slash money mm-hmm. slash British PhDs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of my one of my my uh, manuscripts, the uh, Richard Hill uh, Commonplace book. I'm a lover of Commonplace books. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're the like latter day bullet journals. They're great. Right, yeah. I love that we're coming back to commonplace books with bullet journals and that no <laughs> one's even noticed. But the, yeah, that had loads of different Christmas carols in it and one of them is the Boar's Head Carol and I think it's a it's a, a beautiful piece of work and I love that it's still a carol even now. That is nice. And in case anybody is wondering how, according to a, uh, a 15th century cookbook, you would prepare a boar's head i found a 15th century dutch cookbook recipe that states that the head of a wild boar should be boiled whole and the skin of the head carved lengthwise and crosswise and then be sprinkled with spices all around then put it on a spit have good dough tempered with eggs and sugared and then gild it and roast it then put the head on a wooden brooch in a loaf of bread and carry it thus to the table so like battered sausage basically (laughs) yeah yeah i'm liking that i'm liking that recipe i might suggest it for christmas this year <laughs> it's honestly it's basically a corn dog oh yeah because you have different things are you familiar with the corn dog i am not familiar with the corn dog in the slightest i mean it's basically like i guess it's cornbread i'm not sure i've actually eaten a corn dog to be honest but it's like corn it's like cornbread like around a hot dog so yeah battered sausage yeah we, we have battered sausages with our fish and chips yeah Another proudly Jewish invention, which for some reason British people neglect to mention when they go on about fish and chips. Cough, wonder why. Cough. The battered sausage is quite a, um, quite the thing. It sounds good. I mean, it's from what you're saying, it's basically a corn dog, but with like yeah. wheat flour. Mm. Uh, and from what I've seen of like corn dogs in like uh, like films and cartoons and stuff, not on a stick. Right. Yes, they are on sticks it makes no sense america has a proud tradition of food on sticks food on the stick yes uh it's like weird it's like kebab culture but not (laughs) right (laughs) it's it's a true melting pot of america they took greek they took grecian food and turkish food and they took jewish well they took they took like jewish food and then they took non-kosher food and they just slam them all together yeah, a lot happens in American cuisine <laughs> <laughs> apparently you don't do Indian that well though which makes me very sad and makes me never want to live in America it depends on where you can definitely find good Indian in America but okay. I'd say it's less like like I feel like in a lot of places in the UK you can like expect that a random Indian place will be good yeah and I feel like that's less true in America oh okay yeah some of them are good but like you'd want to maybe read reviews or like there are certain neighborhoods like there's like a neighborhood in New York where like you can be pretty confident that any like Indian place that you go to in Jackson Heights and Queens is going to be really good okay but like an Indian place that you go to in like Indiana like mm, read some reviews first Ad- admittedly similar for Cornwall as opposed to say like Bradford Fair. 
um, where every, like, Indian-Pakistani place you go is going to be absolutely amazing and have enormous portions. Whereas, like, in Cornwall, where the population is, what, like, 98.8% white, um, (laughs) you might have several issues finding a decent place. But, um, (laughs) But I think... I think British people have that kind of standard of like Indian cuisine now, but yeah, admittedly, I make a mean sagalu paneer, so mm. which which makes me very pleased. Yeah, I do a good chana masala. Ooh, there's currently paneer in my fridge, so I'm mm. like yes. So yes, yeah, so we we've got the boar's head. Also, the constant mocking of the miller's drunkenness. There is medieval precedent for mocking people for being drunk. As just an example of that, I will share a quote from uh, Pope Innocent III, who said, What is more unsightly than a drunkard in whose mouth is a stench, in whose body a trembling, who utters foolish things, betrays secrets, whose reason is taken away, whose face is transformed? And then goes on to provide a lot of biblical examples of why drunkenness is bad. Including, like, leading to incest. There's also a um, a great precedent for mocking millers mm. in the medieval period, which is why the miller's tale in, in the actual Canterbury Tales is so licentious, I guess, right. is the way you'd put it. Yeah, because that's, that's the dirtiest of the, uh, the it is. Of Canterbury Tales, I'd and say, yeah. Like, the, miller's, the miller is, like, the most sort of, other than, like, the monk, is the most, like, vilified of the... Yeah. Of the pilgrims and more what it's because millers actually did used to cheat people mm. of their flour of their grain and things like that admittedly not by wasting it but <laughs> like by, they would keep it but by being um but like cutting it with stuff so in the same way that kind right. of drugs w- would be now i guess is mm. the best way you can put it is like you know people yeah. cutting cocaine with washing powder Right, um, basically the same thing the Millers did. It's essentially, Millers would put like sawdust in. They'd put like oh. all this different, all these different things in to flour, and that went right up until like nineteenth century. Yeah, but it is a, a trope, right? And also the trope that they're very lusty. Yeah, is a thing. There's a yeah. there's an old folk song about a girl, and I'm not sure quite when it's from. I think it's from like the Industrial Revolution, border mm-hmm. borderline times. But I imagine it's probably from before that and has just yeah. carried through bits like a um, girl went to the mill one day and she was taking flour she was taking wheat to grind into flour and then the mill mm-hmm. the miller said well i'll show you how i grind and you know it's, it's all <laughs> that kind of thing yeah but that's you know a real it's it's a proper trope because millers were yeah. known as cheats they were known as they were no they were, millers were basically assholes you know right <laughs> and of course the other like notorious group often vilified in medieval literature are monks and priests including like often being lampooned for them not being so great at that whole vow of celibacy thing okay. and so like I kind of like that they actually, like, have a monk who, like, at least, like, portrays himself as, like, vaguely caring about, like, religious stuff. And, like, honestly, he probably does. But, like, the celibacy is just, like, you know, it's a bit too hard for him. We'll probably get into it in the next section where I I get to go on about the monk a lot. But, um, yeah, like, anti-clerical stuff is totally my thing. And, like, you hear so many stories. I was talking to one of my classes about this not that long ago because um, I've been teaching online since all mm-hmm. of this blew up right. and trying to explain to them that, that um, where the textbook says the dissolution of the monasteries kind of came out of nowhere because everyone was so staunchly Catholic and 
you're kind of going no uh there was quite a lot of anti-clericalism and right. and anti-monasticism because look at where you've got monastic inspections you have lots of monastic inspections where where it basically you don't find a lot of what they're doing well because if mm-hmm. there was a good inspection they'd say omnia bene which just means everything's good <laughs> Right. Yeah. But if there was a lot of bad stuff, you'd hear about it more they get chatty. frequently. Oh, don't they just? Yeah. So what you get is like there's the story of like an abbot running like three brothels on mm-hmm. uh, the London on London Bridge. Mm-hmm. You often find things about monks run like abbots, particularly running brothels. I mean, you've got the Robin Hood. Um, stories mm-hmm. which I have spoken about before, which have a very anti-clerical yep. message. If not, look yeah. back to uh, Maid Marian and her Merry Men. It's uh, it's definitely worth it because it's a brilliant show. It's much better than this. Go back to that. <laughs> yep. Why are you listening to this? <laughs> Go listen to something wholesome and lovely. <laughs> and that's the thing too is that like I mean so that's the thing that's interesting that I feel like just doesn't come out in so much modern media is that, like, there is real piety, and that coexists with anti-clericalism because of the ways in which clerics and monks are failing to live up to the expectations that they should be living up to and are being lampooned for that for that fact, for not actually being the, like, exemplars that they are supposed to be. Piety can, like, exist without necessarily having this, like, full peer respect for the authority of uh, monks and priests and bishops who, like, in practice they know often, like, kind of suck. It's why when you're talking about the Reformation and you're talking about Henry VIII and all that kind of thing. I know it's a little bit... I mean, some would say it's a little bit late for the medieval period, but I would say that the medieval period in England definitely existed until 1549. I call just, like, everything through about 1600, at least, the very late Middle Ages. My friend, James Hilson, who you should definitely get on here if you do anything, like, that's vaguely architectural, because he's an architectural historian and he's he's incredibly clever and it makes me sad. (laughs) Because he's he's that clever and it's scary. He he talks about like he doesn't believe that there was actually a Renaissance at all, and that actually <laughs> the Middle Ages ended in about uh, seventeen fifty. I agree. Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good theory. As a social historian, I think that's actually yeah. There's, uh, it's there's it's only when you look at royal history and things that you start right. thinking about a Renaissance and what becomes really apparent when you look at like the Tudor period which I had to do because I had to teach it recently which meant I had to go oh my god oh my god oh my god what am I doing (laughs) because obviously I'm not a royal historian in the slightest my my I'm I'm a social historian like and and a a humor historian I do not do kings and queens and battles Mm -hmm. and that's almost all of the A-level curriculum in the UK so doing that it it was very interesting to see to to sort of try and impress upon my students okay so they were very catholic people they Mm -hmm. believed in all these things but at the same time these people were awful (laughs) and they understood that but at the same time they understood that going through a priest to confess all your sins to god was maybe not the way to go about it they understood that a priest being essentially god's answering machine was not and especially because like you 
like there's such a disjunct between like on the one hand hearing that and on the other hand like knowing priests yeah definitely (laughs) you know it's and sure there were definitely great it's why in the canterbury tales itself the parson is the greatest is it's like the most positively portrayed religious character because he's low on that rung right like he's so low down that he still has those sort of ideals well whereas whereas like anyone higher up so like you've got the summoner you've got the pardoner you've got the nun's priestess you've got the you've got the monk you've got all these different people the friar you've got all these different people who are on several rungs up who are yeah not nice and because they do because they've they've put money and power above those ideals right and and because they've had the opportunity to mm-hmm. and you know it's no it's no coincidence that that the that the parson says his brother is a plowman because it relates mm-hmm. to that Piers plowman thing of like yeah. you know the people who do the work are the most worthy of that kind of recognition and that's yeah. really important in the middle ages like because a lot yeah. of people were getting dissatisfied and you talk about the feudal system, you talk about all these different things, but people were dissatisfied and people were yeah. looking for those, if not scapegoats, they were looking they were looking to punch up. Right. And of course, it's like a language, it's like rhetoric of monastic reform that also goes back centuries. I yeah. mean, that like, that's like, it's like a perennial problem, essentially, that like, you have like, monasticism and then like it's like oh the monks like care too much about like money and positions so like let's found a reformed order and then like oh in like five seconds it's like oh wait no they're just doing the same thing so like let's do this again i guess <laughs> it's even uh, like, oh, oh my god all these monks are having sex what are we gonna do <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i mean so they're like is like so that, like people are like pious and care about religion but that like co- very much just as like coexists with an awareness of the human imperfection of your religious leaders yeah that makes sense with actually that like conversation about like monks and issues there and uh how some of these characters are portrayed that actually seems like a good lead into the next segment the historia veritas where maybe I'm going to let you take the lead here in talking about Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. Fab. Thank goodness it's something I know about-ish. Chaucer comes in very importantly in that his life in itself is really interesting because Mm -hmm. he is one of those sort of generation after that generation that benefited very highly from the, the Black Death. So his father was a wine merchant who got yeah. quite a lot of status from the fact that a lot of other wine merchants died. <laughs> so you've got, say, so this guy is. I mean, I really I love Chaucer, even though he's obviously a complete wanker. <laughs> <laughs> I should put that up front. He was a complete arsehole, but I love. Because I, I feel like I definitely had this moment of like Chaucer is great. And that I, like, actually read Chaucer, and I'm like, Chaucer is sexist and, and, and like, hates Jews. Oh, no, Chaucer is a complete ass. I love him. Because what's so important about Chaucer is that he managed to get all of this sort of stuff that's... In which case, actually, we need to take a step back. There's a theorist called uh, Michal Bakhtin, who is Mm -hmm. brilliant, um, a 20th century 
theorist who uh, is Russian and uh, I mean I don't know why that's the first thing I came up with for him <laughs> he's he's great and I love him but he yeah. spoke about this notion of medieval humour so he mm-hmm. speaks about the notion of the higher ups and the lower downs so mm-hmm. higher ups they have no humour whatsoever they're they're stuffy they're grey it's the church and the royalty they have no sense of humour whatsoever it's absolutely awful then you've got these lower downs and the lower downs are these you know they're the butts of the feudal system they are so trod upon and all this kind of thing and their humour is all bums it's mostly bums Mm-hmm. and sex and all this kind of thing and mm-hmm. it's basically you get one day a year so your feast of fools your april fool's day so all these fool's days mm-hmm. you get a chance to let loose and in this sort of freudian sense you get to mm-hmm. let loose all this bad stuff right. and that's your one day of the year to be absolutely awful and take the piss out of everyone the problem with this theory, even though it's a great theory, I mean, it's great for the time he wrote it in. It's certainly an oversimplified view of medieval society. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> I mean, it's a great theory considering the situation that he wrote it in, in which, you know, he was writing it during Stalinism and all this mm-hmm. kind of thing, which was very humorless. And, you know, you had this sort of lower order of society. But it is, right. it's a part of its time. And actually, medieval humour, particularly in England, and I I hesitate to say England because I would not exactly consider Cornwall as part of England as such in this period because it had its own language mm-hmm. and all this kind of thing. Yeah. But certainly in the, uh, in the British Isles, it doesn't mm-hmm. translate. But what you have in Chaucer is a very clear example of this. Mm-hmm. You have this guy... choosing to mix very different levels of humour in a way that people don't think about in the same way you know people people consider it and just go oh yeah and and also the fact that this was considered canon for so this has been considered canon for so many years and it's so funny and so sort of anti-authoritarian what's most important about this is that it was it was delivered to the king and his courtiers right but it completely satirizes all of these things that the king and yeah. his courtiers would have actually gone for, which says a lot for, for the era he was working in because he worked under Richard II, who was mm-hmm. the ultimate party king. I mean, there's a reason that the form of curry, which is the first cookbook in the English language, was written under Richard II because he gave all these massive feasts. He was... <laughs> he was a, a, I mean, people call Charles II a party king. He was, you know... <laughs> Richard II was like the OG party king. <laughs> he was... He was totally in that. So what's really important is that this is all stuff. All the Canterbury Tales. All the stuff about, like, bums that's acceptable to talk about in your yeah. A-level... A-level um, English class. <laughs> is... Is like that, but part of the problem is that people see it as like, oh well, it's just stuff about bums, so it's 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 completely fine. It's stuff about sex, so it's 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 okay to talk about. You know, it's that low humour, and they still try and divide it. And actually, what happens is in the Canterbury Tales itself is that you get that sort of mix of high and low humour yeah. forms that 
well, I wouldn't even call them low f- humor forms. Even even a smutty joke is a good joke, right? Because it has a certain format. Yeah, and that's definitely the thing too. Also, that I will say that I really appreciate about Chaucer is that people tend to like who don't know a lot about the Middle Ages tend to like see the Middle Ages as like I don't know very like stuffy and everyone's like gray and sad. Yeah, and. I appreciate that we have this, like, this work that is, like, one of the great literary monuments of the Middle Ages that, like, is real dirty. Yeah, but part of the problem is that they either see it as one or the other because they can't, Yeah. they they have to compartmentalise that. Right. Which is also, like, that's a Victorian compartmentalisation. Yeah. Like, it's oh, not a medieval compartmentalisation. I'm sure I've said this in your last one, but the Victorians ruined everything. Um, the last podcast I was on, I swear I said it, but you know, the Victorians ruined everything. And that is my thesis statement for possibly the rest of my <laughs> life. Except sci-fi aesthetic. They they did good at sci-fi aesthetic. Other than that, they re- ruined everything. But what is really interesting about Chaucer is that it, it mixes all these sort of what we would consider potentially high levels of humour finger quotes and finger quotes low levels of humor yeah and it mixes those into a really really interesting mix and what it does is not like it it, it uses forms of humor that we hadn't actually considered as forms of humor until very recently when i talk about this film being one of the most appropriate and accurate portrayals of the monk in the canterbury tales mm-hmm. i speak from a very almost quite a personal place because when I first read The Monk's Tale in The Canterbury Tales I laughed and very few people have. The Monk's Mm -hmm. Tale is considered the most boring of The Canterbury Tales and usually (laughs) usually the theory is that it was one that Chaucer wrote very early Mm -hmm. and couldn't be bothered to fix or was too hung up on it and loved it so much that he couldn't edit it Mm -hmm. what becomes interesting about that is that that Chaucer has shown very subtle structures of humor throughout his writing so the book of the duchess there's so much irony i recommend anyone who is new to chaucer uh, just grab the uh, the middle english dictionary from is it michigan the university that does the um med that sounds right yeah um basically type in med you know and or middle english right. dictionary and you will find it and it will have all of those words in it they'll not be specific in that uh one thing i had uh had a a footnote in it saying the med says simply penis <laughs> <laughs> which is not helpful because you know there's a very very sincere difference between being a complete cock and being a complete dick right <laughs> but um which is one day my my aim to write a book about that in <laughs> medieval language it's like it's basically a dictionary of medieval obscenity i i intend to do that one day i think that would like sell on a popular as well as scar- a scholarly market i hope so um yeah. because i would definitely not write it scholarly <laughs> because because i've run out of room to do that in my head <laughs> But yeah, well, what becomes really interesting about like the monk's tale in particular is that it become it's basically a Stuart Lee set. Mm-hmm. If you look at like how it's a it's a shaggy dog story. It's a story that keeps trying to go places and never actually gets mm-hmm. there. It's a story that takes a long time and has no punchline, and right. it's it's that delay of like tension humor that. Mm-hmm 
that is uh it's actually very clever and people didn't really recognize yeah. until quite a long time recently and a lot of what Chaucer does is that mm-hmm. but yeah it's what Chaucer did beautifully he mi- he is the proof that there is no such thing as high or low level humor that it is all yeah. funny that it's yeah. all very silly so we can now move into the section called Fabula Nostra where we think about what we might do as an adaptation, perhaps inspired by this one. And honestly, I mean, for me, it's not like the Canterbury Tales, I feel like already have like these, uh, you know, interesting, like dirty bits. And if I'm in charge, I'm probably not going to quite do like an erotic film. But like, I do really like the idea of making more films that acknowledge the ways in which like, actually like medieval literature on its own like has body sexy bits and like living in like the way in which like there is sex and there is humor and in which like that is something normal in medieval literature like I think it'd be great to have like a film that was essentially like revolved around like the Miller's Tale. That would be really cool like the Miller's Tale is very interesting I mean it's it's horrible Um, right (laughs) but I mean essentially you could make the Miller's Tale like a Charlie Chaplin film right because like the plot is a carpenter his wife is having an affair with a student the student is like we need to get your husband out of the way so he says go to sleep in this bathtub and uh there's going to be a great flood so you need to wait in this bathtub on (laughs) these ropes until there's a flood and uh you know, you're going to be surviving and, you know, you're going to have the chance to save your wife and all this kind of stuff. So w- don't worry, that's what's happening. And so the 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 carpenter is, like, waiting in the bathtub and just falls asleep, right. at which point he goes off to seduce his wife and his wife is like, <laughs> bugger this. And so, yeah. like, it sticks her ass out the window and he kisses it and she's like, ha, you kissed my ass. And he's like... You! Um, and so he gets like this hot plow blade. So basically a poker, but like flat. And then says, All right, um, I love you. Kiss me one more time. And she sticks her ass out and he, you know, slaps it with this plow, this, this molten plow blade and it burns. I think she might be having sex with someone else. I cannot remember. That, I think she is. Yeah. So he sticks his ass out the window and he smacks it with his molten plow like he goes oh my god no why ah, ah, ah. and this guy goes oh my god it's definitely the flood the, the carpenter wakes up and goes oh my god it's definitely the flood and then because he's crying for water for his his ass and he cuts the he cuts the ropes and uh, thinking he'll float on water and he actually falls down to the ground and breaks his wrist and everyone laughs and it's all it's all very very funny um <laughs> so that that kind of yeah in that, that in itself is like a charlie chaplin film yeah you know it's it's like a slightly rude charlie chaplin film but right. it definitely works you know you yeah. can you could certainly like put a sitcom episode around it right i feel like just doing the mid like doing that and then having like benny like the benny hill music in the background <laughs> yeah <laughs> Admittedly, you could do the Canterbury Tales as a sitcom very nicely. Yeah. Like, have it revolve around, like, these people. It might have already been done. I can't remember. I think I saw it somewhere that it might have already been done. Like, they tried to do it as a sitcom with each tale being a yeah. a different episode. Like, the more I think about it, the more I think I've seen it in mm-hmm. a. Um, 
I I had a book that was like the TV guide that was like all sit all comedy programs produced from mm-hmm. like 1960 to 2000 and <laughs> I really wish I hadn't given it away to an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> but but it's um I'm pretty sure they tried it but it it would be a really interesting uh experiment to do the Canterbury Tales as a sitcom. Yeah. I'd like I think it would yeah. be so fun. Because yeah. you you could end up with so many duels and so many, it's, even if you did it as a porn film like a series of porn <laughs> like short porn films. You yeah. could it would it would work so well. Yeah. Like, there's so much sex in the Canterbury Tales, even yeah. in the Monk's Tale alone, where there's just like it's Adam and Eve, and it's all these biblical tales mm-hmm. of like how t- things go terribly. Right. You could you could do that easy. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Like I can't suggest. Like you usually do. Like like a cast and all this kind of <laughs> stuff because it's just like I do not know anything about porn. <laughs> which is which is unfortunate but it's i i didn't quite have the heart to tackle casting for this yeah no it's it, i mean let's face it it's 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 fun yeah in a very strange way like i say yeah. if you watch it you might never want to have sex again but, but at the same time it, it is quite a laugh yeah which is then a good segue into the uh the last segment the enumeratio or rating where we rate this on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria you would like on the one hand i don't actually think this is a bad adaptation i think it was a painful watching experience <laughs> um but like in a lot of ways like as i said like this is this is a solid chaucer adaptation as things go this like gets some things right about the middle ages like honestly like this isn't that bad it is, but it is still like just so like for me at least hard to watch um and like aggressively unsexy for a <laughs> That uh, I I think I'm going to go for a uh, a right down the middle. I think I'm going to go for a two point five out of five to express my feelings about the overall experience. That's fair. I think I give this film uh, two baguettes and a threesome tarot card. <laughs> fair. And that's as high as I'm willing to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I think thank you for having me watch this film. I'm really uh, sorry. You did you did say you had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did warn you. I promise you I did. warned you. You did. Are there places where our listeners could find you on the internet? You definitely can. My Twitter is at Mabel Watches. And I watched, like I said, I watched this with a couple of friends and Mm -hmm. we enjoyed it so much that we're starting a film podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Which is called Real Trash. So R-E-E-L Trash. Mm-hmm. At the current time of recording, it's our first episode hasn't gone up yet because I've got nowhere to record properly. But uh, when we do get it up, it's going to be wonderful. At, at our Twitter, at Real Trash, so R-E-E-L Trash, you can find... We have currently done a live tweet of the film The Cat from Outer Space, mm. which is quite a spectacular <laughs> film, which has both nice. kernels from MASH in it, which... Mm. 
made me very happy indeed <laughs> so you know you can find us um and that's me so it's basically breaking up the sort of the cishet mm-hmm. notion of like how podcasts often are so right. it's it's me i'm a, i'm a, i'm an ace lady with fuzzy bits around the edges in terms of gender i've got my friend jules who's non-binary and my friend kat who's uh pan and biracial i think is the phrase mm. in in america <laughs> it's it's but yes, my friends, my uh, so we're gonna sort of dismantle that sort of notion of like cis hat white male looking at films and try and give it yeah. a sort of we're basically gonna give it the gayest uh, <laughs> the gayest <laughs> spin we can give it. That sounds fantastic. I am very excited to check that out in the future. But yes, thank you very much for having me. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, for anyone who has uh, enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And if you have any questions or suggestions, or if you would like to ask a medievalist something, please send me an email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. The host is high, a patient, the miller and his wife, and quite a few you'll meet living the Canterbury life. In days of all the knights were bold and lands were for the taking. There were two treasures to behold, but please don't be mistaken. Needs to learn that one such night the future looked quite pale. Let us take you back in time and you will hear his tale. Watch, I watch, eh, come over How disgusting! Well, it certainly seems to have gotten a rise out of it. Come one, come all, and hear of the Canterbury Tales. The woes, the passions, and love at last in full detail. Join in the libations enjoyed so lustily. You too can feel the part of the tale you're soon to see.